episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the Elder Planning Counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. Hi, and welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. This is Jason Watt. Uh, this episode, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to do sort of a clip show. And not that I'm trying to cheap out on recording new content. I have uh, lots of content recorded to get us through to at least another half dozen more episodes. Uh, but I want to make sure that uh, folks out there can get their professional responsibility credits. And for that matter as well, those in Saskatchewan who need them can get their ethics credit this way. So this episode will be approved for a professional responsibility credit from FP Canada, as well as an ethics credit from the Insurance Councils of Saskatchewan. It will also be good for an ethics credit from Advocus, and then life insurance credits in British Columbia and Ontario as well as life and ANS credits in Alberta and Manitoba, as well as a professional development credit for those who need IROC credits. And if you're looking for earlier episodes that have uh, professional responsibility credits attached to them, you can check out Season 2, Episode 1 with Don, where we talked about using the trusted contact person or uh, safe harbor documents where there are capacity concerns, and then we visited capacity concerns again with Aaron in Season 2, Episode 17, where we discussed capacity concerns and estate planning conversations. The color for today's episode is green. The color for today's episode is green. I just have a quick note about the FP Canada Standards of Professional Responsibility. I'm using the version that's live and published as of early April of 2021. I suspect there will be some changes upcoming here. They did produce a consultation document earlier this year where it looks like they're going to add a couple of measures to discuss how financial planners interact with technology tools. It's actually relevant to one of the episodes we're going to use in today's set of interviews, uh, that being the CPP calculator conversation with uh, David. That was uh, season two episode, th or sorry, season three, episode three. But once those changes are made, it's possible that the numbering within the rules in the standards of professional responsibility could change. In addition to the FP Canada Standards of Professional Responsibility, I will also cite the Code of Conduct uh, released by the Insurance Councils of Saskatchewan. This is the Code of Conduct for Life Insurance Agents in Saskatchewan. It is a, a very robust document and something I would like to see other provinces look at implementing some version of. And then we're also going to make reference, although it's quite a bit of a shorter document, 
to the Advocates Code of Professional Conduct. And as usual, I will include links to all three of those in today's show notes. Okay, the first clip we're going to hear is from Howard. Uh, Howard Goldford was my guest on Season 3, Episode 1. And you may recall that he was the lawyer who deals with workers' compensation claims here in Alberta. Uh, something fresh in the news again, as just last week we had legislation passed to peel back some of the changes that Howard talks about in here, basically where the Kenny government has looked at some of the changes that the Notley government had made to workers' compensation and said, oh, those are a little bit too generous to workers. We're going to uh, pair those back a little bit. Anyways, I, Howard gets into something that I don't find we touch on very much in discussions with financial advisors, and I think there are a couple of reasons for this, but I did want to go down the path of what this means as far as our professional responsibility goes, and I want to note here that Howard is a lawyer, and of course lawyers are one of the oldest professions, that is true professions, where there is a standard of responsibility. There is a an ethical code. Uh, in many cases, lawyers are subject to a fiduciary standard. There's a required education and professional testing that people have to go through. There's legislation to indicate what a lawyer looks like in each province. So we have fairly uniform set of requirements for lawyers. And whatever your opinion of lawyers happens to be, the way that the profession operates is representative of many of the hallmarks of a, of a profession. If we're talking about financial planning moving towards professionalism, I think it's worth thinking about how lawyers conduct themselves. What would cause you to tell somebody at that point, look, this is a fruitless endeavor. WCB has made the decision they're going to make and you're better off just to accept it. Would that be a typical conversation out of some portion of those five to 10 calls? That would be more blunt than I would be. Um, I would generally say, well, you've got this going for you, and you but you've got this problem with the policy. Um, you know, talk to your doctor, go to try to get to see a specialist, check to see if there's something in your in your in the evidence. Can you find a witness at work that'll confirm this, that, or the other thing? So I would give them some some ideas on, on how to build their case, but I wouldn't get directly involved. And I you know I would tell them, you know, if you get a hold of this piece of evidence. Call me back and I'll tell you what to do next. And it would become like a, a constant. Um, and it was for me. It was a challenge just to try to remember everything that was going on all the time. And my first line, and I'm sure anyone that has called me will tell you, my first line is, "Remind me what I said to you the last time," right? Because there's just so much going on. So my question to Howard here was about how you deal with a client where you know that you can't help that person. And it's something, again, that I don't find is explored all that often in financial planning conversations. Uh, it does have some overlap with a couple of rules that we see from FP Canada, uh, notably rules 19 and 20, which fall under the header of duties to prospective clients. So rule 19 is more about how you hold out, how you advertise, what you present yourself as. Rule 20, I think, is the key rule here. Uh, a certificate shall provide prospective clients with a description of the services the certif certificate will provide to the client, 
an accurate description of costs, how the client pays those costs, and how everybody involved is compensated. And finally, uh, any information about the certificate that could reasonably be expected to materially affect the prospect of client's decision to engage the certificate. And to my mind, that's where Howard really goes with this answer when he says, look, I, I'm not just going to outright tell you that your situation is uh, hopeless or anything like that, or if I'm not the right person to help you, then I'm going to provide you with some other resources. I'm going to send you to uh, this other entity. I'm going to have you do this research. I'm going to ask you if you're able to answer this set of questions. So I think FP Canada does give us a framework for that. I don't know if it's as well established here as the answer Howard gives. And of course, we know this, that the standards of resp professional responsibility are designed to present a bare minimum. That is, if you're looking to build your practice, you start from here and you say, what more should I be doing beyond just the rules that we see established in this document? On that note, I think it's worth considering with your own practice, do you have a graceful and useful way to help a client understand that maybe you're not the best person to help them, but here are some other things that they could do. Maybe it's another set of planners or another set of tools that they use. Maybe it's further questions they have to ask. But how do you deal with this when a, when a client does not fit the model that you're presenting? There are a couple of other rules that I think people would maybe consider more obvious uh, when we're looking at the FP Canada rules. And these are rules uh, 25 and 26, which deal with limitations around competency and then referring clients to folks who are competent and qualified in the areas in question. Uh, we also see a version of this in the Insurance Council Saskatchewan document where under item five, competence, we have uh, know your limitations. And I think this fits nicely with know your limitations. And that is if something is outside of your experience or expertise, then we want to refer to other professionals, which is actually a doc or a term that's explicitly defined here. And also, I think hand in hand with this, uh, be responsive. And that means not just to say, I can't help you with this area, but rather to give the client some tools that they can use or they can take away and hopefully uh, get some progress in their own circumstances. And then from advocates, this really just overlaps with uh, two areas in the Advocates Code of Professional Conduct, those being uh, competence and professionalism, uh, maybe a little bit of disclosure in here as well. For our second clip, we're going to go back to Season 3, Episode 2, and hear from Alexandra about staying current on pension legislation. Like, if I have a pension question, you're my go-to for pension questions, Alexandra. I don't know if you know that or not, but uh, <laughs> I sent you a couple over the last few months here. Yep. And how do you stay, especially like I've seen, you know, I sent you a BC pension question maybe a month or so ago. I don't know if you remember that or not, but yep. what do you do to stay on top of that? And I find with pensions, this is especially problematic because, you know, you get like in Alberta, I can't, I think we're five different provincial acts that deal with pensions, with employer pensions to some extent. Right. So how do you sort of stay on top of all of that? What's your, what's your toolbox for that? 
it's impossible to stay on top of all of it, right? So I think the first step is to acknowledge, you know, this isn't, that isn't going to happen. I can't, I don't know everything and I can't know everything. However, uh, the standards are generally speaking relatively consistent across the country. So it's kind of like, I kind of know the map, the overall shape of the map, the individual GPS to get where I'm going. I'm going to probably have to look that up. And I do devote a significant amount of time every quarter to reviewing what changed. I have a, you know, professional network of people, peers, who I communicate with, actuaries, other people in the pension world, people working on IPPs. But I, I am the current contributing editor along with David Field. David is, of course, the planner who developed the CPP calculator, which you can also put in the show notes. <laughs> but David and I are the current contributing editors to a product from Thomson Writers called The Guide to Personal Financial Planning. And this is a three-volume, I don't know, it's probably 1,500 pages manual for planners and every quarter we update it so we spend a couple days kind of running through let's read all the let's go to all the pension websites that's i handle the pension stuff so i'll go to all the regulators websites i'll look i just updated just i think last month all the pension benefit standards for every jurisdiction across canada it took me several days because i went and i looked okay what's the website you know what's new since this chart was last updated it's all about when can you retire and take a pension? What are the standards for commuting to a lira? What are the options for unlocking a lira? Those are the things that people want to know about. So one of the appendices in this giant three-volume set is this compendium of pension benefit standards across the country. The short answer is there is no short answer. It takes time. Again, there are some useful rules that deal with this situation. We'll look at FP Canada for starters. And Rule 18 deals with professional oversight and supervision of others. This is sort of an interesting rule in this context because it provides a responsibility on the certificant to provide reasonable and prudent professional supervision of any subordinate, which is clearly not the case here. You would be reaching out to somebody like Alexandra, uh, for advice about a pension matter. However, it does extend to any third party to whom the certificate assigns any work. And the expectation here is that you provide reasonable and prudent uh, professional supervision of any individual whose work is subject to review or oversight by the certificate. Now, there's some guidance here to help out with this matter. And I think this probably gets you off the hook, but that's speculation on my part. I'm not suggesting at all that FP Canada would agree with this. Uh, the guidance does say where assigned work is subject to the certificate's review or oversight in their capacities as certificate, such as where they have a team practice, the certificate remains ultimately responsible for the work performed. Now, you're dealing with a pension question, so this might come back to you just to clarify that, because pensions are an area where you're expected to be competent. It's fairly clearly covered in the body of knowledge and the competency profile. The second part of this, where work is transferred to another professional with specialized expertise. Now, FP Canada gives the example of an accountant or lawyer. So I don't know where that cutoff is for specialized expertise the certificate may rely on that individual's professional expertise. I think even if we are relying 
on that other individual's professional expertise, there would still be an expectation here that you've made sure that person, in this case, let's say Alexandra, if you reached out to her for some pension help, that you would have made sure, uh, really, as we talked about in the last point, last set of points around Howard's comments, you would have made sure that person is uh, duly qualified. And we'll just see where that shows up in the FP Canada rules. And we see this at rule 26, where a certificate refers a client to a third party the certificate has an obligation to take reasonable steps to ensure the third party to whom the client is referred to has the appropriate qualifications to provide the services for which the referral is made. Now, there are some follow-on notes that really sort of suggest that all this means is we have to make sure that that person is literally legally qualified to provide that advice. And I'm not sure what the cutoff here would be for somebody who's legally qualified to provide advice about pensions is uh, really in the absence of any sort of, of course, outside of Quebec, any sort of regulation of financial planning, maybe nobody is qualified or maybe everybody is qualified. I certainly don't think that this means we'd have to go as far as enlisting an actuary for a sort of run-of-the-mill pension question. There are pension questions where we would have to enlist an actuary, and I believe following this rule, this rule number 26, that means that we have to make sure that that actuary is properly registered as a, a, a member of the Canadian Institute of Actuaries. And I believe that you would find if you took a question to, let's say, Alexandra, and she said, this is outside my scope, and she would say, well, why don't you take it to an actuary? And I'm sure she has a couple of actuaries in her uh, virtual Rolodex that she could send you to. Having a look at the Insurance Councils of Saskatchewan guidance here, they actually provide a bunch of examples in this document of licensee misconduct. And specifically here, we have an example on page 17 of this document. And of course, I'll have the links to this document in the show notes. Uh, but on page 17 here, we see an example of past misconduct where a licensee did not sufficiently research the qualifications and expertise of an other professional whose uh, direction when followed resulted in disadvantaging the licensee's client. So if you're going to use uh, somebody to provide third-party advice, and this would include people who, who email me. I get some people who email me and ask me planning questions, or I get this on LinkedIn from time to time, uh, that kind of thing. Well, if you are a licensee and in Saskatchewan and you do that, you had better make sure that the question you're asking to the person you're asking it puts them in a position where they're going to give you an answer. It's going to come back on you. According to this rule, it seems like you would not be able to say, well, I... Uh, I went and found that person. I didn't know they weren't qualified to answer my question. You wouldn't be able to use that as a defense. And of course, from advocates, uh, we would rely on in the uh, Code of Professional Conduct here, uh, acting in the client's best interest, which is their uh, conduct rule number one, priority of client's interest, as well as proper diligence, that is, only doing work that you're duly qualified to do.
carrying on here, we're going to jump to Season 3, Episode 3, where I chatted with David Field about the CPP calculator. And David, as I commented on the episode here, has spent just a ton of time thinking about Canada Pension Plan and its workings. And I'm surprised how I still continue to learn information about the uh, Canada Pension Plan. Something that had escaped my awareness, just as an example here, is that uh, we've seen that rate of contributions increase from 4.95% to uh, now 5.45% in 2021. Well, that difference between 5.45% and 4.95%, the premiums that you pay on that portion are uh, deductible for a uh, self-employed person, the whole portion of premiums, uh, not just half of it. So it's an interesting uh, tweak there. Now, given the amount of time that David thinks about Canada Pension Plan, it was important to me to get his opinion on the plan. And that's what led to this question. What do you like about it? What do you not like about it? You know, you said before, it's that important pillar for almost every Canadian. Should we be happy with it or should we be asking for something different? I think overall, what it does and what it's there for is quite exceptional. I'm not saying it's the best in the world, but I received a call from a journalist a few months ago wondering whether people should be able to access the CPP you know, because in Australia, they were allowing them to access the superannuation. I can never say it. Um, but the but they're totally different programs, right? Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, having a guaranteed pension for people as a portion of their portfolio is a big asset, right? Because for some people, they, they either can save or can't save. You know, so I think it's a good base for a lot of people. You know, I mean, I think the complexities of it and how difficult it is to understand is a challenge for it. And, and I, you know, I think simplicity is better. And obviously I'm able to maybe benefit by creating this calculator because of those complexities. But in general, I think it would be better if there's ways to, to simplify it. But to be honest, it doesn't with the enhancements and all that. I mean, it's not to say that they're not making improving it, um, but it's getting harder and harder to understand. And then also it's a pension, but it's also a disability benefit. And it's also a bit of insurance if you die. And so it it's more than just a pension as well, right? So, which is good and bad, adds to the confusion. It's, it's also harder to judge the true value of it because some people will take the, the disability benefit. Some people, many people won't. And so it's hard to you know judge it because it's, it's got so many components. The answer that David gives here, I think, is a very good financial planning answer. And I think it matches nicely with rules 21 and 22 from the FP Canada standards. Uh, rule number 21, uh, shall always exercise reasonable and prudent professional judgment. And Rule 22 shall make only recommendations that are prudent and appropriate for the client. I think we hear this throughout the interview, but you can hear that David takes sort of this balanced approach where he says, you know, I do like the plan. It's a good plan. Uh, it's quite complicated. 
And he has this sort of pros and cons approach to this. He doesn't come out and say, the plan is perfect, uh, don't mess with anything. And he doesn't come out and say, the plan is terrible. He has this nuanced approach. And I think with most financial planning questions, you should be able to recognize that nuance. You should be able to recognize the pros of a particular approach and the cons of a particular approach, as well as to consider different options, to consider an option A, an option B, an option C uh, for a client. And not that you necessarily have to present to the client option A, option B, option C with a comprehensive list of pros and cons, but the requirement is that you have done that work. And I'm sure some clients appreciate being presented with option A, option B, option C, and then pros and cons for each. And some clients, I think, would prefer that you really just give them uh, one or two options to proceed with. There gets to be a little bit of a choice architecture discussion here. That is, how do I get the client to actually do the things they need to do in order to accomplish their financial objectives. Uh, curiously, at least to me, the insurance councils of Saskatchewan in the agent code of conduct document actually has a set of rules specific to practice expectations uh, when dealing with the public. That is, how do you communicate in social media? How do you communicate in written form? How do you communicate in a podcast? And I think David did a great job here of matching up to, uh, in section four, practice expectations when dealing with the public, uh, rule D. And this is uh, consistently uphold the professional integrity of the insurance industry and those who serve in it by communicating in a fair and unbiased manner at all times. And I think he did this very nicely where he presented again that this is why you might do it. This is why you might not. These are the, the good side. This is the bad side. And I think that he uh, did respect this rule, even though he's not resident in Saskatchewan and I don't believe licensed in Saskatchewan. And again, back to the Advocates uh, Code of Professional Conduct here, I think we would find David's comments uh, match nicely with uh, competence and diligence as well. Do you have a feel for sort of how your clients interact? That is, would you know if they were dissatisfied or if they didn't strike up a good relationship with this lawyer? Or have you had any of that come up where like this turns out not to have been the right fit for that client? So no, usually we'll, um, like I know one of your questions was, do you review the documents? I've seen a couple of them, but I don't make a habit of reviewing the document after getting or after having the will put in place. I do ask the clients how the process went. So the next time we connect or anytime we get an opportunity to do that, I make sure to inquire and, it, and everybody has said it's gone well. What we do do every, you know, every three or four months is I'll ask them for a list of outstanding clients. So say we've referred him 120 names, but he's got, you know, 15 that just, they either did the initial meeting and just haven't got back to him. And then we'll actually reach back out to them just to follow up, be like, hey, you know, it's been three months, you had your initial draft wills done, like these are really important. And usually there's, you know, something's gone on, something's happened in, in life that's caused the delay. But just, again, coming back for whatever reason, and we notice it too with head office, like people respond really well to the advisor, right? Whether it's your lawyer, or it's your admin staff, they like the advisor's 
voice. They like them, you know, affirming something. So if, if something's hanging, a quick phone call or email to say, hey, just touch and base, this is still important. It gets a good response. We've only had under five that haven't actually completed in the last two years. Okay, those who listened to the uh, Christopher Moore episode uh, know that I'm a big fan of his approach to getting that will done. And I had quite a few comments in there about this. I do want to use this uh, chunk of conversation here to address a couple of concerns, a couple of issues that can show up in our ethical practices here. And I think there's actually a lot to unpack with this one. So the first thing is confidentiality. And we know this, that uh, FP Canada, at its standards of professional responsibility, has a fairly robust discussion around confidentiality. We see this at rules 28, 29, and 30. And the big one I'm concerned with here is rule 30. Uh, certificate shall not disclose a client's name to any other party without informed consent of the client. And then a few uh, qualifiers there. And we see something very similar from the Insurance Councils of Saskatchewan, where we have principle number four, confidentiality. And essentially, this overlaps quite a bit with what we see with any other uh, code of ethics or standards as far as confidentiality goes. Uh, but we want to make sure here and follow the, the proper rules, obtain consent for the collection and use of personal information from clients and put in place appropriate safeguards to protect the confidentiality of all client information. So my concern when we have a relationship like what Christopher talks about here is, first off, is the client fully aware of what the relationship back and forth with the lawyer looks like? Is there some express uh, discussion around how we maintain confidentiality there? That is, just because uh, Christopher has that lawyer see his clients on that scheduled basis, uh, we shouldn't assume that all confidentiality has been taken care of. The client should still be fully fully informed that their information is at least somewhat going to be shared between Christopher and the lawyer. That is, Christopher says, hey, have you seen this person yet? Even that is a disclosure that that person is a client. And if we don't address that properly, I would suggest good disclosure right up front with the client to say, look, I work with this lawyer and there's some sharing of information back and forth. That would be a very safe approach to this. And I wouldn't suggest that the amount of information being shared back and forth is in any way offside here. Uh, just the fact though that that person is a client and really uh, Christopher is going to disclose to the lawyer most likely that that person is a client and because of that sort of follow-on discussion, there's that ongoing conversation where we continue to deal, where Christopher continues to deal uh, with the lawyer that still could be considered to be uh, a breach of confidentiality if it's not addressed properly at the beginning. I do think this is an easy thing to get around. I'm not suggesting at all that this is a complicated problem, but if we assume too much here, that's where we get into a problem. So I'm sure that Christopher does this well, but right at the beginning, there should be, again, this clear disclosure that 
you're dealing with this other party, and this is how it's going to look. There are a couple of other things to bring up here. Uh, the next is a potential for a conflict of interest. And I think this one, again, is fairly easy to deal with. Just have to address it. So there would be a potential perception here that uh, Christopher gets some benefit beyond just having his clients get good estate planning documents done, which I would suggest is a giant benefit in and of itself. So that's the first issue, um, is that he does get a benefit, but he's not getting any uh, secondary financial benefits. It should be something that he discusses with his clients. So he's, it's not like he's getting a 10% referral fee from this lawyer or anything like that. And we really have to address conflicts of interest, both where there is an actual conflict of interest and also where there is a perceived conflict of interest. And in a case like this where you do a sole source referral, which I think is great. I, I like sole source referrals. I think that they are more likely to see clients take meaningful action. And that, of course, is the biggest challenge in many cases is getting clients to actually do the things that we need them to do. So get our clients to go sit down with a lawyer or accountant or a therapist or whatever other professional it is we're dealing with. Great. Have we properly addressed conflicts of interest? Rules 7 and 8 from FP Canada specifically delve into uh, addressing conflicts of interest. I think this probably falls under Rule uh, 7D, where we just give a general summary of conflicts of interest. Um, I don't think this falls under Rule 8. And again, this is my interpretation. I don't want to put words in FP Canada's mouth. And really, it's up to every uh, financial planner out there to figure out how the rules apply to them. Uh, but we only really have to deal with Rule 8, and, where there's a, a clear conflict of interest. And I'd suggest this might be a perceived conflict. Uh, so Rule 8 is where we require that we disclose in writing, and then the client comes back to us in writing and says, yeah, I'm okay, we can proceed. In that vein of discussing perceived conflicts of interest, the Insurance Councils of Saskatchewan's uh, guidance document here does indicate that we have to disclose and document to your client any actual or perceived conflict of interest. And uh, perceived conflict of interest, that's a tough thing to, to know. Uh, that does require that you take a very broad look at where there might be that perception of conflict of interest. Uh, this to me, strikes me as something that would be very easy to uh, fall offside of. So especially for those in Saskatchewan who want to uh, properly adhere to the uh, Life Insurance Council's uh, Code of Conduct, again, I'll say that again, disclose and document any actual or perceived conflicts of interest. And this, of course, uh, mirrors something that we see from the Canadian Council of Insurance Regulators, uh, where they have three regulatory principles that apply to agents, uh, one of those being disclosure of conflicts of interest. The third thing that I wanted to bring up following uh, Christopher's comments here, he said he does follow up with clients afterwards to see how the experience was, and he said he doesn't typically see the documents afterwards, and that makes sense to me. I would not... Uh, especially if I'm working with a lawyer who I know is doing a lot of wills and estates work and where I was comfortable initially entering into that relationship, I probably wouldn't 
want to see those documents either. I wouldn't even know uh, what I'm looking at, although I might use that opportunity to learn from the lawyer to ask them some questions and see if I can uh, hone my knowledge of estate planning a little bit. But there does get to be a concern here with an arrangement like this. And this is where we might say, well, what if it turns out then at some point that clients start to have negative experiences? So what if clients uh, have uh, confusing conversations with that lawyer? What if they don't walk away with deliverables? What if their billings aren't understood? Uh, what if later on a client ends up with, let's say, an estate dispute uh, where it seems like the lawyer should have drafted documents differently? How do we address all of those things? And I think with a referral arrangement like this, we have to be prepared and really vigilant that if the relationship doesn't stay in the form that it was in when we started, uh, that we have to be prepared to pull the plug. Now, I would suggest that there is probably some sort of, let's say, progression in pulling the plug. So the first time that you hear a concern from a client, uh, maybe you reach out to that lawyer and you say, hey, uh, I had this concern from this client. Of course, we want to make sure here, again, that we stay in tune with client confidentiality. Uh, sometimes a client voices a concern and they don't expect that to get back to that uh, party that they complained about. So I would say, client, I hear what you're saying in this case. Uh, is it okay if I take this information back and talk to the lawyer about it, instead of just assuming that we're dealing with a case where the client wants us to communicate that. So take that back to the lawyer, say, look, here's the concern that I heard. Can we chat about this? And it might be that the client was confused. It might be that the lawyer is sort of equally frustrated with the client as the client is with the lawyer. We have to really pay attention to how we address this, again, respecting confidentiality, uh, but being prepared that these referral arrangements might lead us into some sort of a, a conflict where it might be that you know, long-standing relationship that becomes very difficult to sever. It might be that it's hard to recognize when it's necessary to sever that relationship. It might be that the lawyer just needs some help from us. It might be that maybe the lawyer is too busy or maybe they've got something going on in their personal life. And in cases like that, maybe we can work with that person to uh, help address those concerns, uh, maybe just have uh, a break from use of those services or give that person just a little bit of a reprieve and then come back to, to using that. I do have one, another client that has uh, MS and denied by the doctor initially. So, uh, but the doctor is now going to sign the forms after okay. the, that, that note was sent off that this is what the display tax credit's for. Oh, now they're going to fill the form. So that's a success story that now I've got to wait for CRA, but I know CRA will approve. I absolutely know that. So I just okay. need the doctor's form. Okay, this is another area where I was a big fan of uh, Jonathan's approach to things. Uh, he really knows his stuff around both the RDSP and then by extension, the disability tax credit. I want to take this opportunity to go down the path of uh, suitability 
and reasonable and prudent uh, judgment and recommendations. And we're actually going to start with the insurance councils of Saskatchewan here. And we see, as an example, uh, under principle number two, product suitability, only recommend a product, service, or strategy which you thoroughly understand. And I just want to emphasize, in this clip, uh, Jonathan heard something from the physician, said, no, this person has MS, it's a serious enough condition that we should be able to get the disability tax credit in place. And I would suggest this is where, and you hear uh, Jonathan talks about this confidently, he's dealt with these issues, where he says, once we have the, the completed form, once the physician recognizes what's happening here, that uh, CRA will be on site. So I, I think this is a good example of only recommend a product, service, or strategy which you thoroughly understand. I think sometimes when we look at suitability, uh, we think about it strictly in terms of product suitability. This is really maybe service or strategy suitability. And hand-in-hand hand with this, with the disability tax credit, uh, make certain your client understands your recommendation. Uh, this is where we do run into problems sometimes. The disability tax credit certificate uh, sometimes is perceived as a little bit complicated, although in theory now the version we're using is simplified. Um, but you can end up with this case where I find sometimes the advisor and the medical practitioner are kind of talking over the client's head. And I think the advice here, the uh, comment around suitability from insurance councils of Saskatchewan is quite good. The client doesn't necessarily have to understand the full ins and outs of the section of the Income Tax Act here, Section 118 of the Income Tax Act, uh, but they should have an understanding of why it is that we're going back to the physician uh, a second time to get the, the form redone, for example. I'm not sure that the FP Canada guidance uh, in this area is quite as prescriptive. We see under financial planning services, rules 21, 22, and 23, which have a fair bit of overlap here, basically exercise reasonable and prudent professional judgment, only make recommendations that are prudent and appropriate, and only implement strategies that are prudent and appropriate and won't uh, materially and negatively impact the client's best interests. This idea of sort of asking the client to jump through some extra hoops to essentially do something they've done once already in order to get that disability tax credit in place. I think we can clearly see that that is in the client's best interests. And it's not like Jonathan is taking the approach of, well, let's just keep trying and see what happens. No, he's actually taken steps here where, and I, I would suggest this is what's reasonable and prudent, where he's taken steps to say, look, let's go back to the physician. Uh, we can explain the importance of this, explain how it works, and then we're going to uh, reapply. So it's not just a matter of keeping hammering at a problem. It's a, a question of we've addressed where the, the gap or the deficiency is, and we can progress from there. I think this also uh, ties in nicely to the Canadian Council of Insurance Regulators regulatory principle around priority of the client's interest, where uh, this is not going to be, I would suggest, heavily compensated activity. 
I don't think uh, Jonathan is getting rich from having one of his clients reapply for disability tax credit. And uh, clearly here he's putting in some work that is probably going uncompensated. Uh, definitely that's a, a good example of putting the, the client's interests ahead of his own. Adrian and I had uh, discussed financial planning with uh, physicians, and I had a question for Adrian that was intended to uh, really address the concept of lifestyle creep, and Adrian nicely reframed the question. He might have been playing a behavioral finance trick on me here, I'm not sure, but uh, anyways, he reframed the question in a way that uh, I think allowed him to I uh, go into some detail about how he views the uh, physician's income, um, expenses, need to save, sort of long term, and how he compares that, uh, let's say, desire to uh, accumulate assets uh, for the uh, financial planner uh, against what the real needs of that client are. So let's hear what uh, Adrian has to say about that. Now, just on that note, so you taught you you I think uh, alluded to it a couple times in your comments. What do you do about lifestyle creep? This is a famous problem for physicians and dentists. And how do you how do you play that uh, that I don't know whatever the the bad cop there? What do you do there, Adrian? You know, it, that's a great question. Um, one of the I'll rephrase it just a little bit if you don't mind, yeah. which is I often hear things like the work life balance. Right. And so sometimes that lifestyle creep, they only think, well, I have to work harder and harder and harder in order to adjust for that. Um, and yet they're in danger of, of burnout. Uh, sometimes they're not able to scale up to the same way or it's delaying their planning. So what I like to do is be able to reverse engineer how much you need to work. I'm working with this one surgeon and, and they make significant income. And everybody that they were dealing with was saying, oh, well, if you give me this much money, I can grow your pot this big, or I can grow your pot that big. And what we worked out was how big and what kind of pots we needed first. And at the end of it, I'm able to go to this person and say, look, we only need you earning about 60%. In other words, three out of every five days, if, you, if they could schedule themselves that way. But only about 60% in order to make your debt and your lifestyle and your savings, your insurance, all that happen. Now, that 40% difference, that's how I would address that person's lifestyle creep. So with that 40%, they can work less. That's a lifestyle choice, right? They can work the same, but accelerate their plans, like their debt repayment or savings, or spend more. Because from a, and that's where I'm less concerned about the tax, because from a, a planning perspective, it's irrelevant. So let's start this one with a look at something from the Insurance Councils of Saskatchewan, and specifically here on page 13 of the uh, Life Insurance Council of Saskatchewan Code of Conduct, uh, we have a discussion about responsibilities to clients, and specifically here, an example where a policy was sold to a client with little regard for the client's ability to pay. And this uh, overlaps with the principles of suitability and competence. This is, I think, a great example of what Adrian is talking about, where he says, look, it's fine. You could look at 
uh, income minus expenses. And if you listen to the whole episode, you'll hear that he focuses on that type of idea a fair bit. You would just look at income minus expenses and then uh, sell the client sort of that much. Uh, but he really takes this alternate tack where he says, why don't we look at what the real expenses are and then look at how much income is needed and builds in not just current uh, consumption, but also future consumption into that conversation. This to me is a, a great example of being properly respectful of suitability and not just product suitability, but really suitability overall of the set of recommendations being made, as well as competence. And again, there's a good connection to be made here with rules 21 and 22 from FP Canada, uh, which exercise, sorry, rule 21, uh, certificate shall always exercise reasonable and prudent professional judgment. Uh, again, the idea here being that we're putting, we sit down, we work with the client, we figure out what the client needs, and only then do we build those recommendations. So the, the example Adrian used there was that doc who only has to really work three days a week. Now, whether that's viable or not, and you kind of heard it in his tone there, but said that doc only has to work three days a week to do everything they want to accomplish financially. And that leads us to rule 22 as well. Uh, certificate shall make only those recommendations that are both prudent and appropriate for the client. And I think the uh, comparison that Adrian is making here is some people might sit down with that physician and say, all right, uh, doc, keep working that five days a week and we're going to take the sort of unnecessary two days and that's all going to get socked away into future consumption. We're going to save all of that um, and that might very well happen in the engagement Adrian was describing. It might very well be that he has the conversation with the doc, says, look, you only really need to work three days a week to accomplish your financial goals. And the doc says, yeah, okay, but I'm happy working five days a week. That's how I'm going to maintain proficiency. I would have a hard time finding ways to, to fill the other two work days uh, or the uh, employment contract I'm in uh, compels me to do that or the maybe shareholder agreement I'm in compels me to do that. So the physician might not have as much control here to reduce that, but the the first step Adrian took here, which I think fits very nicely with this idea of prudent and appropriate, was to frame that uh, physician's earnings in such a way that the physician has the opportunity to maybe step back a little bit and say, what's really needed here? Is there uh, a work-life balance uh, issue that I can maybe address and once we've arrived at that decision, then we can look at what happens with that extra 40%. Now, the other thing that happens out of that um, extra 40% discussion, you heard Adrian talk about this, was that becomes a, a sort of a ward against future uh, lifestyle creep. And that's an excellent example of know your client. That's where Adrian says, you know, working with physicians uh, for as long as I have and having seen as many of them as I have, the tendency there is if we don't discuss that sort of 
unallocated or missing 40% from the financial plan, that it's going to go to things where uh, maybe no conscious thought was given. And this idea of lifestyle creep, I think it's an interesting idea, um, not maybe within the scope of this conversation, but we can get to that in a future episode. Mike Cosgrove from Tamlo and I had discussed anti-money laundering, and we got into a whole bunch of related uh, concepts here. In this clip, you're going to hear Mike talk about human trafficking and financing of terrorist activity. Why do we need to do these anti-money laundering procedures? And it's it's got to go beyond, uh, honestly, Jason, beyond just simply protecting yourself against liability or watching out for your company's reputation, those are definitely at stake. I mean, if you uh, get caught for, for instance, willful blindness, in other words, someone is laundering money in your firm and you should, you should notice it, the, it's, it's, it's obvious enough, and, and you, uh, there's willful blindness proven, you could go to prison. You could have a huge fine. So, but it's gotta go beyond that. Um, it's, it, it's, it's really setting before people the, the the idea that spotting an unusual uh, unusual activity and noting it for your compliance team could mean the difference between putting some really bad people behind bars or them just continuing and you know it could be the missing piece in the in the knowledge puzzle that helps law enforcement build a case against a human trafficker or a terrorist network um and you know we we were talking before we started this conversation about human trafficking and the initiatives that have been done you know, it's, that's where you really see, I, I think, you know, you talked about, the, um, you know, clients or people that work in this industry not really thinking the behavior is real. I actually had a compliance person tell me, um, I showed them the video of our, our Carl story, and they actually told me that none of their staff think this stuff is real. And she sat and watched our video with her husband, who is in law enforcement, and he looked at it and he said, this is exactly what happened. When this episode uh, came out, actually, when Mike and I recorded this, I thought I could have maybe got this episode approved for a professional responsibility credit all on its own. The biggest challenge here is, as we're doing right now, you do have to make explicit reference to the rules uh, to get that approval. So it's uh, it's a little bit tricky to do that with a sort of hour-long interview, although we have done it in the past, and maybe we'll be able to do that again. But um, I think this will be our method for using the or for getting our professional responsibility credits going forward because uh, it lets me uh, have a little more free reign in the interviews. Um, anyways, uh, just a ton of stuff in this episode that overlaps here. The, the rules that I want to point to from FP Canada, rule number one. Now, this is a rule that I think sometimes is included as kind of a catch-all rule, and I'll show you where there's some gray area here, but... I think what Mike talks about, there is no gray area. So rule number one, a client shall not engage in or associate with individuals engaged in conduct involving dishonesty, fraud, deceit, or misrepresentation, or knowingly make a false or misleading statement to clients or any other parties. The area where I always think there's a little bit of gray area here is in something like uh, a client who 
is a little bit dodgy with their taxes. Uh, it's very, very normal for uh, clients to have some degree of tax evasion. You might get somebody who, as an example, um, willfully submits uh, their uh, parking when they go to their office as a business expense. The financial planner becomes aware of that. Uh, that is uh, technically not allowed. You're supposed to pay for your own parking at your own premises out of your um, after-tax dollars. It's not supposed to be a tax-deductible expense. So uh, that might be tax evasion. Okay? That might fit into that realm. Uh, is the financial planner who deals with that client uh, willfully dealing with somebody who is engaged in dishonest behavior? I don't know. I think that that's not really what this rule is intended to capture. However, the stuff that Mike talks about, you have to have somebody here who is willfully making false or misleading statements. And in my uh, pro bono financial planning activities, I have dealt with some uh, victims of human trafficking, and there's always a substantial amount of dishonesty happening on the other side, the, the victimizer. The uh, guidance here gives us a little bit of help, as the guidance usually does. The very first statement on the guidance, uh, this rule applies where a certificate knows or ought to know through appropriate inquiries that they are associating with individuals engaged in dishonest conduct. And I think if you listen to the entire interview with Mike, you'll hear that this stuff is happening. And in the clip here, he said, yeah, the there are real examples of this, despite, I think, the naivete of some folks in the financial services sector. Certainly for me, I was uh, naive like that at, at one time. And I kind of thought, well, a financial planner, how likely are you to run into somebody who is uh, engaged in this human trafficking type of activity? But having seen what happens here, I know that folks who are who are doing this type of activity are processing funds through legitimate financial uh, institutions and using bank accounts and using debit cards and using investments to um, support that activity. So I think we can't afford to be naive and have to recognize that there are people out there who are, let's say, skilled liars. And if you do these appropriate inquiries, uh, then you might end up uh, discovering something about a prospective client uh, that would be captured in the type of thing Mike talks about in this clip. We also see rule number two, and I think rule number two has a, a strong overlap here. Certificate shall not engage in any conduct that reflects adversely on his or her integrity or fitness as a certificate, the certification marks, or the profession. Of course, this is the last thing that we want is to have anybody, but let's say a financial planner, a certified financial planner, caught up in helping to launder money or helping to move money that uh, should not be moved inappropriately. And as we saw in the uh, guidance to rule number one, um, just asking good clarifying questions, uh, having that proper know your client responsibility goes a long way here. And of course, never mind the ethical concerns here. There's a legal concern as well. FinTrack does have obligations for likely anybody listening to this podcast that you have a responsibility to maintain good anti-money laundering policies, 
as well as a way to apply those policies and then to report to FinTrack where you have a suspicious transaction or the other triggers under your respective set of rules. And this links into rule number 24 from FP Canada. Uh, a certificate shall provide their professional services in accordance with applicable laws, regulations, rules, or established policies of governmental agencies or other applicable authorities, including FP Canada and the FP Canada Standards Council. The Insurance Councils of Saskatchewan rules, curiously, don't specifically cover this type of activity. Now, of course, they're likely leaning a little bit on FinTrack here on the Financial Transactions Analysis Report Centre of Canada, which is where most of our AML responsibilities, at least our legal AML responsibilities, reside. There is the area of practice expectations when dealing with the public, and I would argue that this is probably where the Insurance Council of Saskatchewan would choose to go after somebody if there was failure to adhere to AML principles. There is no explicit reference to that, however, in the Insurance Council's of Saskatchewan Code of Conduct. Speaking of things that are not included in insurance regulation today, uh, let's roll into Dave Patriarch's comments. We're in Canada. Uh, almost 50% of all cases sold, group insurance cases sold, are sold by advisors who sell one case or less a year. So that's kind of like, I, to me, it's like going to a mechanic who works on one car a year or a doctor who does one physical a year or something like that. Like, that's just, that's kind of crazy. You, you would never do that in any other business, and yet we do it. This question of licensing for group reps is a little hobby horse of mine and Dave's, I guess, and I'm sure there are a few others who uh, have the same opinion. In Quebec, there actually is separate licensing for uh, group insurance brokers or group insurance advisors. But of course, in the rest of the country, uh, with your uh, life license qualification program, you are qualified to sell group insurance along with pretty much everything else that an insurer would offer. And I have a couple of things that I'd like to follow up on here. And I, I don't want to uh, necessarily say people shouldn't be selling that contract. The licensing works that way. And uh, I think it is possible to not do a lot of group business, but still be familiar enough with the products. As Dave mentioned earlier in this interview, you don't hear it here, but something like half of businesses in Canada don't have group benefits. So just the idea that have a whole bunch of, let's say, uninsured folks uh, running around out there. And the idea then that we can put uh, this insurance in place and cover that risk, at least that's a, that's an upside to uh, not maybe having the uh, group benefits license. So a little bit of nuance to this subject. Now, Dave is not a uh, CFP certificate or QAFP certificate, so he's not uh, subject to the standards of professional responsibility, and nor am I for that matter. But I did want to take this opportunity to highlight uh, rule number three. And rule number three, a certificate shall not impugn the reputation of another certificate to either clients or the public 
Any concerns regarding the unprofessional conduct of a certificate shall be referred to the Standards Council for review in accordance with the provisions of Rule 2, unless uh, prevented by law or confidentiality requirements. Now, it's not that uh, Dave is a CFP certificate or QAFP certificate, and nor am I for that matter, so neither of us is technically bound by this rule, uh, but I want to point out how Dave levies this criticism where he really focuses on the issue here and not on advisors. And I think it's important if you're ever in a position where you might be delivering this type of criticism in a public forum to pay attention to that content of Rule 3. And I have seen people do this differently. I have seen people criticize very specifically other individual advisors or individual financial planners in a public forum. And I think that's something we have to be a little bit cautious of. Um, and in particular here, it really is rule three that gives us uh, guidance around that. Now, moving past that uh, criticism, I think there is some validity to the idea that we want to have a good understanding of the products that we sell. And we see this echoed in the Life Insurance Council of Saskatchewan core requirement here around product suitability. And the rule here is only recommend a product, service, or strategy which you thoroughly understand. Now, I'm not sure how far that thorough understanding is supposed to go exactly. Um, we could look at a whole life insurance policy. And certainly, I think everybody selling a whole life insurance policy would understand that you pay premiums on that policy uh, for a given period of time, quite often for life, but you could do 10 pay or 20 pay. And in exchange for those premiums, at some point, when the life insured dies, a death benefit would be paid. And there's some cash surrender value and some non-forfeiture provisions. And I would suggest that it's not unusual that agents would understand some of the maybe contractual nuances that their insurer provides. Uh, for example, if it's a joint and uh, first-to-die policy, a lot of times we see provisions there around uh, splitting the policy if the couple separates. So those to me are all good examples of uh, product, service, or strategy, which you thoroughly understand. However, um, it's very normal that I'm uh, training life insurance agents in the financial planning curriculum and we get to the underlying structure of a whole life insurance policy. And this is where we talk about the idea, for example, that the net amount at risk in a whole life insurance policy is actually based on a yearly renewable term concept, that really the, the risk in a whole life policy is a YRT risk. And this is where a lot of people are, I think, uh, taken aback that they do not understand that necessarily. And this is where, if you don't get that, does that mean that you don't thoroughly understand the product, service, or strategy? And I'm not sure. I don't know where the cutoff here is. I think that you could make that argument, but then at some point, you're always going to run into some level of depth of understanding that's beyond what's necessary for dealing with a client. So the example I just gave, maybe you have to know that, but really it doesn't matter that much. It only 
probably matters if you're dealing with uh, leveraged life insurance scenarios. Maybe a little bit if you're uh, if you have a client who's using their insurance as a collateral, uh, but for probably 99% of whole life insurance policies, that's really an irrelevant bit of information that probably doesn't help you to better serve the client. And even if you know that, do you understand once you dig further into the policy, do you know exactly how the reserves are invested and you understand the various risks associated with the investment of those reserves. So there's always going to be some depth of understanding that's too much for what's needed for a client. And the onus to that, I would suggest, very much lies with the life insurance agent, the onus to understand that. So when we get to group benefits, going back to Dave's comments, I think that Okay, you can understand what's in the benefits booklet, and that's probably useful for a client. Do you know how the renewals work? And really, when you think about who the client is in a benefits scenario, the, the client is the plan sponsor. And the plan sponsor might have a couple different concerns. I'm going to suggest that the plan sponsor is going to be very sensitive to the price they are paying for the benefits that they're uh, passing on to their employees. There could also be the question from the plan sponsor as to what protection they have or their family has. And I think that recognizing that you're you're really trying to help out on both fronts there, that is understanding the benefits, but also understanding the costs and how those costs get controlled and what we can do to make those uh, reasonably predictable from one year to the next. I think that's quite important. And that ties back to this idea of only recommend a product, service, or strategy, which you thoroughly understand. And then this takes us back to what we talked about with Alexandra's interview. And this is the idea that from time to time, you are not going to have the entire set of competence necessary to serve a client properly. And there are plenty of people, I'll use group benefits here just because it's the lead-in we had from Dave's example, but there are plenty of people out there, plenty of uh, group insurance consultants or advisors who will co-broker with a, a licensed agent and really take all of that administration off their hands. And I think that fits nicely with, like I said, what we talked about with Alexandra. The number for this episode is five. The number for this episode is Five. To obtain your CE credits for listening to this episode, you'll need the color and number in order to get through the quiz. And also, you'll have to pay attention to the interview. There are five questions in there, and you'll want to do well on all five. Pass grade is 60%. So the place to go to do that is bccquiz.online. That's BCC is in Business Career College. So pop over to bccquiz.online. There's a short five-question quiz there. You should be able to do it on your mobile phone once you are parked. Then you can subscribe right then. It's pretty easy to do. We're always looking for more subscribers. I think this is a super efficient way to get your 
CE credits. And it's pretty common for me when I tell people about the podcast for CE credits, they say that's a great idea, but I'd still like to get those numbers up. So please pop over to bccquiz.online. 15 bucks a month will get you all the CE credits you need, including your professional responsibility credits. And we're doing two episodes a month now or one episode every two weeks. So please pop on over to bccquiz.online and subscribe. I'm curious to hear what people thought of the clip show here. I wonder how this uh, turned out. And like I had said earlier in the episode, this was really the only way that I could practically think to do the uh, professional responsibility credit slash ethics credit for those in Saskatchewan. It becomes a little too forced now, I think, trying to do it in the context of a natural interview. So you can probably, we'll see what listener feedback gives us, but you can probably look forward to two of these episodes per year. If I get any kind of reasonable feedback on this one, I'll have another one before year end for the CFP and QAFP certificates who are listening because, of course, you have until December 31st have your two professional responsibility credits for the year and I do want to make sure that you can get those. Now I'm hoping you'll join us again in two weeks when we'll be joined by Melanie and Melanie has a really interesting pension buyback case, quite a complicated case, lots of moving parts with this one and I think that uh, you'll quite enjoy that discussion with Melanie. Thanks so much and enjoy your continued studies. There are quite a few people who help out with getting these episodes to air. Joseph Tong takes care of our editing. Maria Nguyen takes care of all of our continuing education approvals. And Sushami Parmalopaket, Ji Wu, Lisa Hoffert, and Penny Watt, my mother, make sure that we have people listening to the podcast through their marketing and sales efforts. Thank you so much.